0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 7. I believe it's on page 974 in the Bibles provided there in the chairs. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. You know, last week at this time, I was all set to preach on Isaiah chapter 9. Um, You know, I'd been studying, I'd been reading, I'd been praying, meditating on... Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and, and uh, there's so many glorious and wonderful truths in that passage, and I was looking forward to bringing that and, and sharing that with you, but it was last week uh, during our service, right after the time of confession, Caleb read from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and, and when he read it, I, I, something happened, and I knew that I needed to change my text, and so I went home and I began to prepare on this message. we get so caught up in Christmas, all of the decorations, the travel, the music. We stress ourselves out about getting everything ready, making sure we have all of the preparations and plans in order. Uh, buying just the right gift for so-and-so, just trying to make this, this Christmas just like the one before, and the one before, and the one before, and every one that we're going to be given from there on after to be this special moment, this special experience with our loved ones. And those are good things. They are. We can celebrate that. But you know, somewhere along the way, the perfect and eternal purpose of Christmas Gets pushed aside. Gets hidden behind lights and wrapping paper and pine needles. The one who is meant to be central, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, he gets outstaged by Santa Claus or by our relatives or or by what we hope is waiting for us under the tree. Quite honestly, we teach our kids that very thing. In a well-meaning and well-intended effort to show love and to show appreciation and generosity towards one another, we inadvertently trade glorious eternal truth for toys, for treats, for trinkets. You know, Christmas is all about gifts. Christmas is all about family, but not in the ways that we expect. It's about gifts, but it's not about the gifts that we give to each other. It's about family, but it's not about scurrying across the country so that we can gather around a table or around a tree with our relatives. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 reminds us of how Christmas, how gifts, and how family are meant to go together under God's eternal and glorious purpose for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And it changes the way that we think about all of them. And Lord, I just pray that this passage would change the way that we think. It would change the way that we would plan. It would change the way that we seek to celebrate Christmas. Because nothing can compare to what we've been given in Christ. That is why we are here. That is why we do this. I want... Christ to be our central focus because if we truly grasp that it will affect the way we celebrate the season it will affect the way we think about giving it will affect the way that we think about our time and our travel and all of the things that we have to do all the preparations all the decorations all of it you name uh, associated with Christmas all of that will be transformed because we'll want Christ to be central And instead of celebrating the holiday, we'll begin to celebrate Christmas. The central truth that's conveyed in this passage that I want us to understand how it applies to gifts and family in light of Christ is that God's gift of his son is our gift of sonship. God's gift of his son is our gift of sonship. And so let's read this passage together, hopefully, expectantly, and prayerfully that the Lord would indeed change our hearts. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born um, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, this passage tells us that Christmas really is all about gifts and all about family. God's gift of his son is the gift of our sonship. Now, to serve our time together, I just want to break that main idea up into two points. And so, first, there in verse 4, God's gift of his son. Christmas is not a holiday to celebrate trees, lights, gift giving, or relatives. We don't come together to commemorate some fabled story of a poor family that gave birth to a very special little boy in a barn among an audience of angels and shepherds and wandering wise men. We celebrate Christmas because the God of the universe, the God who made us and sustains us and all that there is, chose in that true and ancient event to change the course of history according to his eternal plan by sending forth his son. You know, we don't often consider just how pivotal the birth of Christ is. I mean, we have a notion of it, but we're so forgetful. I mean, we we get a glimpse of it in the way that we order our chronology. I mean, if you think about it, we, we count the years forward from the birth of Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, and we count history backward from the birth of Christ, B.C., before Christ. Right? Christ is at the very center of our history. In fact, he divides our timeline in two. And whether or not you, you believe that that's because this is the true word of God or that you just believe that some naive scholars just kind of happen to go with that, uh, method and we're just kind of sticking with that system of dating. You have to understand that at least it bears witness in the fact that people at one time believed the word of God and believed that Christ was the center of history and established a, 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 an order, a method of dating that displayed that. But we have something even greater. We have a better testimony than our method of chronology. We have the revealed word of God. And in this passage, the God of the universe, who made and sustains us, tells us himself when the fullness of time had come that he sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, and what does that mean? It means that God has a plan for all of history, all of time. Beginning, middle, and end. And sending his son was fixed within the central purpose of that history. Now we could spend days and days and days proving this from God's word. I mean, there's so many Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in Christ. There's so many passages that speak of God's eternal plan to reconcile all things through his son. But I just want to highlight a couple that I think sufficient to prove the point Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. All right, Immediately after our first parents, Adam and Eve, and and the Bible treats them as real people who lived within history, who really existed and sinned against a real God, after they had sinned against God, God promised them that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, that he would overturn the effects of mankind's fall into sin. He He would... Crush, sin, temptation, Satan, and death. All that happened as a result of our sin would be overturned so that the seed of Adam would be God's son once again. Skipping forward, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel." Which means God with us. Now, some people want to debate, said, well, the child was born to Isaiah in chapter 8. Yeah, but the greater promises that God made through Isaiah were not fulfilled in Isaiah's son. They promised and point forward to something far greater. In fact, you pick it up in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You might think, well, okay, they're speaking of Isaiah's son until it says what it says next the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah's son was named the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. Very different names. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, that wasn't fulfilled in Isaiah's son or in the immediate offspring of King Ahaz. Ahaz. And the New Testament connects both of those passages to Jesus. They said they're fulfilled in him. Throughout the Old Testament, God himself declares that he has appointed a time for salvation, a time of deliverance, and a time of judgment, which will come by means of a son, by means of a servant, by means of an anointed one, the Christ. And every time God speaks, and every time that God acts throughout human history, in those first 39 books of the Bible... It ushers us forward. It moves us forward in anticipation for the full fulfillment of time to come when at last God will send forth his Son to fulfill all of his promises, to deliver all of his people, and to judge the world. And Jesus understood this. And Jesus understood this of himself. And so at the beginning of his ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He understood that all of those Old Testament promises of an appointed time to come, when God would send forth his anointed one, were all pointing to and leading up to him. And he tells his disciples as much, that he fulfills all of the law and all of the prophets. Elsewhere in Ephesians chapter one, verses nine and 10, we looked at this months ago. Paul tells us that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. How's he done that? He's, He's done that through his word, most specifically through the gospel. And this was according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. There it is again to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Then in Ephesians chapter three, and Paul speaking of his ministry said to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Why? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then he says this, this was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized, that God has made known through Jesus Christ our Lord. So even when you just put all of those together, what you see is that God has A plan for all of history. Jesus is right dead center of that plan. In fact, what it tells us is that all history is about him. When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son. This tells us then, we think about it, that that the son had to precede this intentional and eternal plan of God for the fullness of time. I mean, think about it. All, it was always a part of God's plan to send forth his son. And so if that's the case, then the son is God dwelling eternally with his father from before the foundation of the world. You get what I'm saying here? This is, this is tight. Like What Paul's doing is he's giving us a really tight theological statement for us to understand some very deep truths about who Jesus is. He wants us to understand that Jesus is God, fully God, eternally preexistent. Right, because if God had a plan from before He created a thing, before He created history, a plan for the fullness of time, beginning, middle, and end, and this plan included sending forth His Son at an appointed time, then the Son had to exist before He made the plan and before He created a thing. I mean, for this verse to be true, the Son had to be preexistent with the Father from all eternity. Christ had to be God. Right? It's not that God eternally existed, and then he created his son, and so there he is, you know, like nothing else existing, there's God, now there's his son, now what are we gonna do? What am I gonna do with my son? Oh, wait, I know, I'll create a universe, and and I'll develop a plan for the fullness of time, which will include, will involve the work of my son, and then I'll just, okay son, here's, here's what you have to do in that plan, now you go, you go out there, you run along, and you do that. That's not what he's saying, nor is he saying, that God created all that there is and then it unexpectedly went wrong. So God had to then at that point think of a plan for the fullness of time that would later adopt or create a son who, who isn't really like him, some sort of demigod who would be able to come in and sort of clean up all the mess that God had made. And God's plan for the fullness of time was certainly more than for us to tell a story of a special little boy who didn't cry when his mom laid him in a manger so that he would be a hallmark example for us in peace and goodwill toward men. And I'm not sure which of those God would find more blasphemous. No, the God who predestines according to his purpose and who works all things according to the counsel of his eternal will, this eternal plan, sent his only begotten son, God of God, light of light, being of one substance with the Father. It's Nicene Creed. This son, who is, in him, who is himself preexistent God, and, and Paul clearly believes that. We could look at 1 Corinthians 8 or 1 Corinthians 10, Colossians 1, Romans 8, Philippians 2, 2 Timothy 1, many other passages where Paul clearly believes that Christ is the preexistent God. This son was sent by his father when the fullness of time had come. And so as Timothy George said this, this is important for us to get, God sent forth his son. He didn't send his son, not from Galilee to Jerusalem, nor from a manger to a cross, but all the way from heaven to earth. The full implications of this text can hardly be grasped in human language. In sending Jesus, God did not send a substitute or a surrogate. He came himself. Grasp that this morning. To understand the gift that we've been given, you have to get that truth. Jesus is fully God. God sent forth Himself and His Son, and so already in these two phrases that we've looked at in Galatians chapter four verse four, we see one that God gifted us with the knowledge of His eternal purpose for the fullness of time. I mean, think about the gift that that is. We get a God's eye view for all of history. We know our origins. We know how God has been at work throughout the course of history. We know what it's all leading up to. We know the inner workings of all that because he's told us. And so we know how we fit into that. That's a glorious gift. And gift number two, God has given us his eternal and divine son. And we don't arise to him He was sent to us. God sent forth his divine son. Why? Well, let's just keep going. It says next that the eternal son of God was born of a woman. Now, wait a minute. You just said that the son of God is divine and then he was born of a woman? Well, yes and yes. And just for clarification's sake, I didn't say that. Galatians says that. (laughs) This passage is hitting us with a lot of really, really big concepts this morning, is it not? I mean, there's the Trinity. How, how is God three persons in one nature? You know, Father's God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. There's one God. He's going to hit us with substitutionary atonement in verse 5. How can it be that the Son of God could sacrifice himself for my sins or the sins of God's people? There's the indwelling Holy Spirit in verse 6 adoption into God's family in verses five through seven. And here we've got the hypostatic union. The son of God is both fully God and fully man. I know I just threw a lot of big words at you all of a sudden there, but it's important for us to know what these words are and you're gonna be tested on them later. Uh, Merry Christmas. No, no. The Bible doesn't assure us that these concepts will be easy for us to grasp. Or that we will understand them fully. But it does tell us that we can know them truly. And that they are true according to the eternal plan and revealed word of God. And so the son, in addition to being fully God, was born of a woman. He's fully man. How can this be? Well, Luke 1 tells us that God sent the angel Gabriel to marry Jesus' mother, and he said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, though David had been dead for like a thousand years. Um, And he will reign over the house of Jacob, who had been dead much longer, forever. And of this kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So in other words, she would conceive by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, in this one little statement in Galatians chapter 4, born of a woman, Upholds the virgin birth of Christ and his full humanity. The Son of God really was born in a smelly stable, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and laid in a dingy feeding trough. Now, why is it important for us to know that the Son of God was born of a woman? Well, the same reason it's important for us to understand that he was born under the law. We think about it. In his divinity, Christ is Lord over the law. In fact, he tells us as much in Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 36, when he says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But in his humanity, through every trial and through every temptation, through every fear and weakness that we as humans could ever experience, Jesus did what we could not. He perfectly obeyed the law of his Father. In all things, every jot, every tittle. He lived a perfect life of holiness, righteousness, and truth. He fulfilled the law's requirements with his life, and he bore the law's curses in his death. Friends, what is perfection worth? In Major League Baseball, we pay lots of money to a pitcher, who can pitch just, complete just one perfect game? What would we give for a pitcher who only threw perfect games? Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. Here we cherish purity. The more pure the gold is, the more pure that a diamond is, the more that it's worth. Well, how much more The son of God who perfectly obeyed God's law in the flesh, perfectly pure, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. Parents, what would you give for children who always did what is right? Voters, what would you give for a politician that always told the truth? You see, Christ is of immeasurable worth not only because he is the fullness of time And not only because he is the eternal, divine son of God, but he is worthy of all honor and praise for the sheer fact that in his humanity he obeyed God's law perfectly. He's perfect. I mean, who can do that? There's been only one. And so in this one verse we get a very, very complete summary of who Jesus is. You understand that people write books about this stuff, right? I had a book on my shelf, The Person of Christ by Donald McLeod. It's over 300 pages. Paul just summed up everything that Donald McLeod said in four phrases in one verse. It's amazing. Simple, yet so profound. But friends, honestly, even more important than having a solid doctrinal statement on the person of Christ What I hope is that you will see the treasure of what we've been given in Christmas. That God has let us in on his perfect, wise, and eternal plan to send his one and only son to do what you and I could never do. To perfectly obey God's law. To live a life of perfect holiness and righteousness. I mean, what can compare to that? When you think about it, what, what could you receive this Christmas or any Christmas or every Christmas that can compare to that? You know God's purpose. You know his plan. You know how he achieved it, who he achieved it through, and how he went about doing that. And that's only half the gift. So God's gift of his son, second, is the gift of our sonship. It says, but when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What we see happening here is that he's moving from who Jesus is now to what Jesus has done for us. Now, I wonder how many of us sense our need for redemption. I said, are you daily aware of your need of redemption? I mean, I think at times we certainly do. There are times where we're just like, life is crazy. We feel like we're in over our heads. It just seems impossible. We feel like we're buried and we just need somebody to come and bail us out. But honestly, I think that most of the time we don't operate that way. I think most of the time we feel like we're okay. We're pretty good. We've got this whole thing together. I I, I can handle this on my own. And, And we like feeling like we're in control, that we can do this. By ourselves. But the truth is we're not. We're not good enough. We're not moral enough. We're not law abiding enough before God. We can't do enough good. We can't perform enough religious activities to ever please God on our own. Because we are sinful people who cannot keep God's laws. Now, we like the idea of rules. Rules are easy. Just tell me what to do and then I'll do it. Just tell me what what I'm responsible for. I'll just go. I'll get it done. I'll check it off the list. We wanted to treat God's law that way, like we could actually do that. But God's law doesn't work that way. God does give us a list of what to do, but he does so to prove to us that we can't do it, that there's a problem with our hearts, that we need Redemption. Friends, that's exactly what's going on in the context of Galatians in chapter 2 and 3. It's what Paul is dealing with. The Christians in Galatia, they're trying to submit, again, to aspects of God's law that Christ had already fulfilled. Namely, circumcision, observance of Jewish calendar, and certain food laws. And they wanted Christians to obey these laws that Jesus had fulfilled. And the reason why they're wanting them to do that is because they want to prove that they were right before God based upon what they've done. They wanted to stand upon what they had accomplished, what they had fulfilled. Kind of said, I'm in because of this. Look, this is what I've done. I observe the Jewish calendar. I've been circumcised. I hold to these food laws. Honestly, it would be like us trying to prove who understands and loves Christmas most By who sings the loudest carols or who gives the most gifts or who makes the most Christmas cookies or who puts up the most lights on their house or who wears the ugliest Christmas sweater. It doesn't prove a thing. But Paul told them, look, you can't think that you have it all together just because you keep some of the law. Because you consider yourself to be a good person. Because if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But life cannot be given through the law or your sense of rightness or wrongness or how you compare yourself to other people. Instead, he says to them in chapter three, verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the requirement of the law is perfection. You obey all of God's laws perfectly. We can't do that. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, you can't say, you know what, I'm okay. I'm all right. I've got this together. I'm all right with God because I'm basically good. I'm pretty moral. I keep most of God's laws most of the time. If you're gonna try to live that way, if you're gonna try to live on your own righteousness, you have to keep the whole law and keep it perfectly without erring once. And you can't do that. Friends, have you ever lied? Guilty. Have you ever lusted? Guilty. Have you ever wanted something really bad that, that belonged to someone else? Guilty. Have you ever been proud? Guilty. Have you ever put something else before God as more important to you in that moment than Him? Guilty. And so the law, though perfectly holy, it becomes a curse to us. It is a crushing weight of debt that we can never repay. It declares to us that we are indeed guilty and we then become imprisoned under it. And so we need Christ, who perfectly obeyed God's laws, to come and to redeem those who are under it. To pay that debt that we could never repay on our own so that we might be freed to follow him. And if you are operating out of that false notion that you can obey God on your own or that you can keep God's laws or if you don't sense your desperate need for Christ's righteousness to redeem you from it, friends, there's a danger there that you might not truly have Christ. Or when you celebrate Christmas thinking it's all about having Christmas spirit or goodwill toward men rather than what we've been given in our Savior's birth. Friends, we celebrate Christmas because we have a desperate need for redemption that can only be paid by the righteousness of Christ and by nothing else. And we receive it not by what we do, but freely by grace through faith in Christ alone. But in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, more was accomplished than just our redemption for sin. It gets better. It does more than just clear the slate So some distant, angry judge does not condemn us. Our salvation in Christ is more than a change in legal standing before God. No, God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. I think this is a really hard concept for us to grasp. I think at times it's really easy for us to see the godness of God the otherness of God, the greatness of God. When we think about his power, we think about his eternality, when we think about his holiness and his righteousness, his perfection, it's hard for us to imagine such a great God would have anything to do with us. And so we picture him as some distant, powerful other. He's out there not wanting anything to do with us. But we forget that the Bible also pictures God as a loving And merciful father who desires to be near to his children. Not because he needs us, but simply because he's good and he desires to bless. And so in love, God chooses to adopt unworthy sinners just like you and me through sending his son to pay the penalty due for their sin. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of that, we who are in Christ are now children of God. He is not just a holy judge. He's not just a mighty lawgiver. He is our loving heavenly father who actually calls us his own. Friends, do you believe that God loves his son, Jesus Christ? I think that's an easy one for us to affirm. Do you believe that God sent his son to die for sin? Also, something we can affirm. Are you trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of eternal life? Well, I pray that that's true. Here's where it gets personal. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that you are His child? Not because of your worth or anything that you've done, but because of the worth of Christ that's been freely given to you. By faith in him. Do you trust that your father is near? That he's caring for you? That he's working for your good to draw you to himself even when you can't see it? Even when you can't feel it? Even when you feel all alone? Again, friends, if we're honest with ourselves, adoption as God's children is one of the hardest truths for us to grasp. It really is. Perhaps it's because we feel so unworthy. Truth is, we are. Perhaps it's because we're afraid to trust in Him. Maybe we have difficulty accepting what the Bible says. Or or maybe we, we fear abandonment. We've had loved ones in the past who have betrayed our trust and they've left us, and we're afraid that we might do something wrong and God might abandon us too. Or maybe, maybe we're on the complete opposite end we're just really satisfied with where we are and what we've been given. Right, we've got a, I have a really good family and, and I don't want to be asked to, to give that up because adoption into God's family is going to change my relationship with my earthly family, not in terms of my love for them, but in the way that I relate to them. And so maybe you cling to the shadow rather than embrace the light because it's hard for you to imagine that God's family could possibly be better than this. wherever you find yourself this morning, know that adoption into God's family is true and that it is far, far better. We know this because God has an eternal plan for the world, which included focused on sending forth his one and only son to live a perfect life and to sacrifice that life for sin. And he rose again so that you might be adopted into God's family as a son or daughter to live with God in that glorious family for all eternity. My friends, that is far, far better than anything that you can temporarily experience here on earth. What we experience here, all of the blessings are but a shadow of what is to come. And we know this is true for the simple fact that God sent his son so that you might receive adoption. It's it's an objective reality. God sent forth his son. Therefore, we know that we might receive adoption as sons. And because of Christ, we can be sure that we stand in the grace of God, not in view of our own worthiness, but through the good work of Christ. And as certain as we are that Christ pleases God, we can also be sure that we please God, not because of anything that we do, but because Christ is in us. And although we daily offend God by our sins, yet we, and yet we often as we sin, God's mercy, it bends over us. His love covers us therefore sin cannot get us to doubt the grace of God because our certainty is of Christ the one who overcame the law the one who overcame sin and death and all evil so long as he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us we have nothing to fear of the anger of God because he is our loving father But we have even more than the objective truth of Scripture that assures us that Christ gave his life and rose again, that we might be adopted into God's family. We also have subjective assurance as well. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See not only did God send forth his son so that we might be redeemed of our sin and adopted into as God's sons but he also sent the holy spirit the spirit of God the spirit of his son into our hearts the holy spirit working in the lives of believers is a sign and a pledge that we truly are sons and daughters of God can you see the holy spirit's work in your life the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, changing our hearts, illuminating our minds with the truth of God's word, convicting of us of sin and leading us towards righteousness in Christ. This gives us assurance of our state before God, that we truly are his children. We are his people. That is why our heavenly father sent the spirit into our hearts so that we might know that we belong to God. <clears throat> Sorry. True children of God can point to the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. They can see that they're growing in their love for God. They can see that they're growing in their love for God's word. They're seeing growth, that they esteem Christ more and more and more, that they love God's people, God's family more and more and more, that they're growing in holiness and want to be like him. They can see fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control growing, increasing in their lives. It's, and this is how it becomes real to us. Because our Father has sent the Spirit of His Son to work in our hearts. And friends, it's by Him that we cry, Abba, Father. Now this is not some cutesy little phrase, Abba, Father. This is a cry of love. It's a cry of intimacy, but it's also a cry of desperation and despair and dependence. Excuse me. We see it first in Mark chapter 14 when Jesus, overwhelmed by the thought of his impending sufferings and death, pleaded in love to his Father for strength to do his Father's will as he sweat drops of blood. And though he begged his father that to let the cup of God's wrath for sin be removed from him, he trusted his father and he prayed for strength to do his Lord's will. That's when he cried, Abba, Father. And because of his sacrifice, we now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to strengthen us and assure us so that we might do the same thing. This is not a cutesy term of endearment. It's a cry of love. It's a cry of intimacy. It says, Father, I know that you are my father no matter what happens to me, no matter what befalls me. I know that you will strengthen me and I love you. It's a cry of dependence, a cry of despair. And yet we have the Holy Spirit to plead in and with us that as we plead, Abba, Father, he pleads, Abba, Father. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. Listen to to how Martin Luther described this prayer. He says, The fact that the Spirit of Christ in our hearts cries unto God and makes intercession for us with groanings should reassure us greatly. However, there are many factors that prevent such full assurance on our part. We're born in sin. And so to doubt the goodwill of God is an inborn suspicion of God within all of us. Besides this, the devil, our adversary, goes about seeking to devour us by roaring. God is angry at you. God is going to destroy you forever. In all these difficulties, we have only one support, the gospel of Christ. To hold on to it, that is the trick. Christ cannot be perceived with the senses. We can't see him. The heart does not feel his helpful presence, especially in times of trials where a Christian feels the power of death, the power of sin, the infirmities of the flesh, the goading darts of the devil, the abuse of death, and the scowls and judgment of God. All these things cry out against us. The law scolds us. Sin screams at us. Death thunders at us. The devil roars at us. In the midst of the clamor, the spirit of Christ cries in our hearts, Abba, Father. And this little cry of the Spirit transcends the hullabaloo of the law, sin, death, and the devil, and finds a hearing with God. The Spirit cries in us because of our weakness, because of our infirmity. The Holy Ghost is sent forth into our hearts to pray for us according to the will of God and to assure us of his grace. Let the law, sin, and the devil cry against us with their outcry let it fill the heaven and earth the spirit of god outcries them all our feeble groans abba father will be heard of god sooner than the combined racket of hell sin and the law you've got to love that guy you see friends God has not only done all that is necessary to redeem us from our sin, to redeem us from the curse of the law, and to adopt us into his family by sending forth his son, he has also given us his spirit so that we might be sure that he is always with us. No matter the trial or the trouble that we find ourselves in, he loves us, he hears us, he is for us, and he will complete his work In us. And so, as it says there in verse 7, you are no longer a slave. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer bound under the curse of the law. Instead, you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. A son is an heir not by virtue of any high accomplishments or intrinsic good, nothing based upon who he is as a person or what he's done in and of himself, but simply by virtue of his birth. We are all mere recipients of the grace of God in Christ, which causes us to be born again, which gives us new life, which makes us his own. We didn't do that. We didn't accomplish that. We didn't achieve that. And because we are heirs through the work of Christ, all of the riches of His glorious inheritance are ours in Him. All of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are now, right now, ours through Christ. We need only receive it through faith in Him. I mean, think about what we've been given glorious inheritance, an unfading crown. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Put that under your tree. If we could only grasp what we've been given as heirs of God, we would indeed let goods and kindred go. And this mortal life also. All the power and wealth of the nations be as chump change compared to what we've been given in Christmas. What is the world to him who has heaven? Or as Luther again said, yes, if a person could perfectly believe this, he would not long remain alive. The anticipation of his joy would kill him. Friends, these are the gifts. This is the family that we've been given in Christmas. And I pray that that would not be crowded out by friends and family, that it would be not left at home while we travel to see them. I pray that it would not be outshined by the twinkling of lights or buried under mounds of wrapping paper. I pray that our enjoyment of The Christmas feast would not slake our hunger, the hunger of our souls to find satisfaction and nourishment in Christ and in him alone. Because this is what we've been given in Christmas. And it's so much more, so much better than what we so often celebrate. This is joy to the world. The Lord has come. May our hearts rejoice with this truth that God's gift of his son is our gift of sonship.